people are becoming obsessed with 5G and saying that it's the government spying on them, that there's a conspiracy theory with Bill Gates and the vaccine and 5G and people are putting chips in your arms so that they can monitor and control you. And people are actually attacking cell towers, destroying them, vandalizing them because they believe this so much and they want to do something about it. This is Undeleted the show about the amazing founders and companies who've used government R&D, grants, contracts, and sales to build their products, grow their companies, and keep their equity. We're Katie Person and Gene Kesselman from MIT, and Jeff Orzum from FedScout. And on today's show, how a team of national security practitioners and academics came together to address online extremism and misinformation. Yeah, so I mean, how we sort of learned about January 6th. I mean, January 6th period didn't exist. Um, I wasn't involved with Pira at all yet. In fact, I had a very young baby and I was uh, sleep deprived and six, seven hours ahead here in Europe and sort of vaguely remember seeing semblances of, of this riot that was happening. I think it must have been the middle of the night for me while I was up to feed my daughter and thinking, my God, this is crazy. And then the next morning waking up and it had all happened. There was news articles, there was video footage. It was insane. We were literally watching Americans attacking their own democratic institutions under false belief, right? False beliefs that they, their election had been stolen. We have the, the physical manifestation of people believing their election was stolen on January 6th by storming the Capitol and calling hang Mike Pence. That's why we really started to create Pira, right? The idea started as a piece of technology um, in human rights first to try and combat extremism online. But it was the events of January 6 which really made the board members and the execs recognise that the problem was much, much bigger and we really needed to do our part to try and combat that, which is why we spun out the technology into our new startup, Pira Technologies. Uh, and what we're trying to do there is give people a tool to be able to identify these violent threats, to identify hate speech, to identify disinformation, and hopefully stop it from becoming real-world threats, real-world violence. Because at the end of the day, we're never going to be able to stop people from having an opinion, no matter how horrible that opinion is. And the internet will be a tool where they can share it. But what we need to be able to do is stop those opinions harming people in the real world. And I think we've only just started to think about how we can stop those threats becoming dangerous to people, but we really need to start trying because this is becoming an epidemic which is getting out of hand very, very quickly. I would like to maybe un unfurl the thread of how you make a decision to take something that was GOTS, a software for the government or inside the government, to decide to commercialize it yeah, sure, Jane. Um, actually, it's, we're a little bit even more complex than that. We actually started in a not-for-profit. So Human Rights First opened up an innovation lab a couple of years ago now, and my um, co-founder and our CEO, Welton Chang, was the CTO there. And so our technology really began as a, a tech development for not-for-profits, for not-for-profit not -for NGOs who were trying to fight for democratic freedoms, for trying to protect human rights, for trying to stop extremism around the world. So it was never really meant to make money. That was never the purpose of it, right? It was a for-good piece of tech. But the event, because the events accelerated so quickly following January 6th, 
the decision really was, okay, we invented this tech for the greater good, but you can only do so much with this technology when it sits in an NGO because they're limited from doing certain things. They can't sell to the government. They can't sell for profit. Uh, they don't have the financial resources to take a piece of technology and spin it up into a, a soft piece of software that you can really commercialise. So that was the major issue. And we said, okay, how do we take this piece of technology and really get it to as many people as we possibly can? And that's how we got to the decision to commercialise it. And we went, okay, it's got to be a venture-backed startup. It's the only way to do it. And that process took a bit of time. You know, it was it's not very common for, for VC tech spin-outs to happen from not-for-profits. So it was a new experience, a new journey for Human Rights First and for us. Um, but in our early days, when we were talking about who our customers should be for Pira, of course, the first um, thought to our minds was the government. January 6 happened. All the discussions following have shown clearly that the government is not prepared to manage these sorts of threats. It doesn't have the tools to do it. So they would be our number one customer. Um, but as we were talking about the challenges of selling to government, it became very clear very quickly that this takes a lot of time. It takes 12 to 24 months to really win your first contract, and it's probably going to be a small contract. And to get to that point, it really requires a lot of time and a lot of money. And when you're a startup, these are things you do not have. You need to generate as, as much revenue as you possibly can, as quickly as you can. So we said, okay, we do want to sell to government, but government is not our priority. We need to think differently, uh, which is why we started thinking about the application of our technology to the commercial sector. And so we looked at who this could be interesting for, and we said big commercial corporations who have dedicated risk and security teams, whose executives are facing hate speech, whose executives are facing threats of violent attack, perhaps their company, their brand is caught up in crazy QAnon conspiracies, which has huge financial implications for the company. These are people that we can help. Uh, so we started taking the idea and taking the product and, and sharing it with some of these corporations through our beta testing period. And that was really amazing because it not only showed us that there was this huge market, there's this huge gap that needs filling that we can certainly fill the hole for, but it also helped us improve the product dramatically, especially around the user experience area. Could you share a little bit about where the tech was when it was leaving human rights first and help us understand the process of, of migrating it out? Yeah, I mean, it's fair to say that the product at Human Rights First, which was called Extremist Explorer, uh, from what we have today is entirely different, even when it comes down to how we've coded it, right? It's And that's uh, literally the rapid journey of evolution the product has gone through. You know, when we were at Human Rights First, it was really testing the idea, you know, is it even possible to use AI and ML and natural language processing to identify this type of speech? And yes, it was great. But then we really wanted to take it a lot further. So not just to be able to capture and identify extremism, extremism online, but as I mentioned, also capture disinformation, violent threats, offensive language, hate speech. So the, the programming we had to write around that was, it's been a lot more extensive. And then taking a piece of tech, uh, which was just for a demo, through to something which users can really pick up and use intuitively and not have to spend a lot of time working out really changes the product as well. So to be perfectly honest, it's night and day between where the tech was at Human Rights First to where it is now. They're almost completely different pieces of product, which is great. 
So are you, um, so starting with a nonprofit to a tech startup, are you licensing something from the nonprofit? Can the nonprofit accept such a license? How does that work? So we've, at the end of the day, we have, we love the fact that we have come from a human rights organization and those ethics, those morals really sit at the core of what we want to achieve with Pira. At the end of the day, we want to make the internet and the world a much, much safer place. And we want to be able to do that for as many people as possible. I think one of the biggest issues for folks uh, taking this path, I think, is to conceptualize the idea that they have the solution and now they have to go find a customer in a different, in a completely different world for this solution. Yeah, for sure. One of my very good friends at the start of our journey said, just be careful you don't fall in love with your product. It's the biggest mistake all founders make. And it's very true because you become so attached to your idea and you think that you have the perfect solution that you actually stop listening to what your customers are. And so we have absolutely evolved our product a lot over the past few months, especially. And and our beta testing phase has been invaluable there uh, because we had some amazing beta testers from across the not-for-profit sector and also the commercial sector. And they really enabled us to test some of our assumptions very vigorously and they gave us very blunt honest feedback which we listened to very carefully um, and in doing that we took away some of the things that we had in Pira and we added some things in and some of the priorities we thought we needed to think about for development turned out to not be true and we've now put those on the back burner and we've elevated other areas into our product development roadmap. Um, but I think the most interesting things that we discovered are probably no-brainers, right? Our customers are exceptionally time poor and most of them don't even want to log into another platform. So we sort of thought, how do we have to deal with this? This is a problem. We have to be able to provide our service to them without them having to log in. So we created a different type of product set for that type of customer. Um, so it wasn't that they didn't want Pira, it was that they didn't want more things to do which is very understandable. So we tried to set about tackling that problem and I think we've achieved it. And some of the other things that we've actually identified is a different customer set that we hadn't even thought about, which is VIPs who often increasingly find themselves the victims and the targets of hate speech because they've gone on a news site and they've shared an opinion. The CEOs that are supporting vaccine mandates are getting a whole lot of hate speech. And even social media influence one misstep and all of a sudden they become a target for doxing there are people out turning up at their houses threatening them physically which is just so scary and so by listening very carefully to what our customers were telling us we're able to take our idea which at its core stays exactly the same but evolve the product suite and the pricing model in a way that we could service different people and different customers I'm curious, you have such a non-traditional origin story. How did you fund this phase? <laughs> yeah, it's been an interesting journey. We're actually just about to close our pre-seed and it's certainly taken longer than would be true. So a bit about myself and my co-founders. We do not tick any of the typical VC founder boxes, right? My my co-founder and our CEO, Welton, is a Taiwanese immigrant and an army veteran and CTO of Human Rights First, former CTO. Eric, our CTO, is also an army veteran and a West Point grad. And I'm a, a woman, an Australian, who has come from working in defence and space. So the three of us together do not tick any of the regular startup founder boxes. And straight away we found that added to our 
product, which is also in a new emerging, slightly different area, meant that VCs, the big ones, they really liked us, but I think we were too risky for them. We They couldn't put us into a nice little pigeonhole. We weren't a food delivery, and that posed some problems with us. For them, they couldn't even really align us to cybersecurity. And so in the end, we made lots and lots of pitches, but the big VCs really were unable to commit. We did find some great traction from the smaller VCs, the VCs that are starting to become more and more popular these days, whether it's around funding female founders or sustainable impact products and services or doing something a little bit different. Those guys really liked us, but what we've had to do is ultimately bring together a combination of angel investors and small boutique VC firms to come together to get us our seed. So we've done it the hard way, the long way. It's been pretty frustrating, especially for Welton at times. But I think ultimately the harder road is going to work better for us in the long run. Because as with all startups, when you're looking for partners, for VC uh, funders, you really want to find people that you align with in terms of the direction of your company, what you want to achieve. And that was one of our biggest issues as we went forward with Pira. We really do have a very strong ethical and moral approach to how we want to develop technology and where we want our product to go and that's not for everyone so I think the fact that we've found the right people now even though it's taken a long time that is going to be great going forward. How long did that take you that before you realized oh I think we're not traditional we're not what people are expecting us to be what were those signals and how long did that take you? I think you know we're all very realistic people, Welton, Eric, and myself. And I think we knew from the beginning we were unique and that it wasn't necessarily going to be an easy sell. But I would say it took us probably the first month of pitches. And because all the VCs are the same thing. It's very interesting. It's very nice. Thank you very much. Come back to us next round. They all say that, which is very unhelpful. So I think it was a little bit of back channeling we did. And we've got a couple of wonderful strategic advisors who have been through this before help us get a little bit more insight after the first month and it became very clear then that okay yeah they're not going to say it openly but because we don't fit the boxes they're going to pass and we needed to think a little bit differently about how we cobbled together our investors to really get that group that were going to support us. So if I remember correctly from previous conversations, you're you're starting VC and then your next steps are federal, non-dilutive types of resources. Is that right? Yeah. So we're sort of, we're definitely taking the dual track approach. So we've already had um, our first revenue in from the commercial sector and we'll certainly be pushing that really hard in Q1 and Q2 next year so we can start to get that revenue in the door. Um, so then, of course, we can push, put it into our product and make that better. But the government track, we're not ignoring it. We're just going to be a little bit selective in how we move forward for the first 12 months. And that comes down to resources uh, because at the end of the day, pitching or chasing government contracts, as you guys know, is a slow and expensive process. You need to hire people or you need to work with uh, specialist consultants who can help you write the proposals correctly, who can help you meet the right people in these organisations to get uh, letters of support, to help you work your networks on on the hill. Whichever angle you're taking, one of them or all of them, this requires a lot of work and a lot of time. And when you're a team of three, 
you really don't have the resources to to dedicate to something that will eventually come off, but you know it's not going to come off for 24 months, right? So um, we will sort of be starting to chase a couple of sibbers, I think, as we go forward into 2022. But again, we're going to be very selective to make sure that they're the, we're the best best position to potentially win some money there and also that we don't waste our time and resources applying for things that we're just not going to win. Yeah, b- building on that, I think that Sibber has become the first stop for a lot of small businesses that are looking for funding from the government. Could you share anything about the mechanics? Like how did you how have you explored the program? Uh, how have you assessed the kind of the, the cost benefit of going after it? I think one of the challenges of Sibbers is that it's such a fragmented process, right? There's not one place you can go to where it has all of the upcoming Sibbers for all of the different agencies listed in a nice chronological order where you can go through them and say, great, next month there's this one I want to apply for. Fantastic. And I think you're working towards solving that, Jeff, which is fantastic. It needs to be done. It's not before time. Um, As it works now, you need to know that the Air Force has um, a whole lot of SIBs coming up and how to access those programs, where to look for them and what the dates are that they'll be putting them out. So you need to proactively be looking at all the different agencies at all the same time and try and work out how these um, programs get up and running, what type of requirements there are for their proposals, which can be quite long and quite in-depth. How do you write these proposals in a way that gets their attention? What languages what language is uh, the certain agency using on a topic that perhaps another isn't that you need to put into the proposal to get their attention. It becomes a nightmare of bureaucracy is the nice way of explaining it. So it's not to say that there's not value there. And especially when you are a startup, SIBAs genuinely are one of the best ways of starting to get that foot in the door because it gives you, it gets you in front of the customer in a way where the customer is not committed to buying something from you that they don't know, uh, or perhaps it's not going to be for them. You get a little bit of cash to essentially do some of your R&D on the government's dime, which is wonderful. And then before long, hopefully, you have a customer who's bought in and committed to your product and it can turn into a more viable long-term contract. So it really is the best way to start up, for startups to start, but it can be quite overwhelming. Government is also an obvious customer for you. Mm -hmm. Can you share any reflections on how you've thought about when the right time, who the right people are? Yeah, so our planning's very much, again, been quite cutthroat in how we've thought about which government agencies we want to target. And at the moment, this a lot of this comes off the back of January 6th and some of the discussions and the outcomes there. And so the obvious customers, for example, Department of Homeland Security, maybe a couple of the intelligence agencies, and then a few of the bigger agencies like USAID, um, Department of Defense, you know, the big guys who really have a need for this solution and can use it quite broadly. And that's where we're starting. Uh, That's where we have a couple of inroads. We have a couple of contacts. We've shown the product to people informally in a couple of these agencies and had a really good response from them. So we know we have a solution. Um, And we're slowly pursuing opportunities there at the moment informally. And when the right time comes, we hope to sort of move into the procurement process. And at the same time that that's happening, of course, there's a lot of prep work that you have to do as a business to be able to provide 
a, a service or a product to the business. We need to completely get up and running on FedRAMP. There's a whole lot of certification and security requirements that we need to meet. And that in itself is probably a full-time job for someone that we need to hire specifically to achieve this. Um, so we're trying to focus on, I suppose, a couple of the big whales we would like to win and what's required to win those guys over the next 12 to 18 months. And then there will be some smaller opportunities that may come up on an ad hoc basis. But really, we're trying to stay very focused so we don't get distracted because that's where you end up wasting resources, wasting money. And before you know it, 12 months has passed and you've spent a whole lot and you have nothing coming. And I think just to clarify for listeners, USAID does not offer SIBRs, but it does offer other contract opportunities. And DOD is by far the largest agency. I, I can't remember the 2018 figures were like over a billion dollars just in SIBRs and SIDRs. So DOD is definitely the largest. Yeah, and by the end of the day, there is a huge, like, there's a, a massive amount of money which is reserved, especially for us, right? Small businesses, veteran-run businesses, which we also are. It's there's lots of the government wants to help businesses such as ours uh, be successful because they know it's beneficial to the American economy, they know it's beneficial for tech development, they know it's beneficial for themselves. It's just unfortunately the bureaucracy can make it a little bit difficult to get your foot in the door, but it's worth it. One of the biggest challenges I hear people comment on is actually finding the person inside of, you know, DHS or USA to go to go de- do a demo to. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you've been successful there. I was, I was curious, do you have any, how did you, how did you get in that room? Networking. That's the short answer. We're very fortunate that because all three of the co-founders come from the veterans intelligence world, we have a lot of connections still in, in the forces, in government, and also a lot of people who have left and gone into the commercial sector in these roles. And it's a very tight-knit community, and that's one of our secret sources, I guess. Because we speak the same language, because we're from the same universe, it opens a lot of doors for us. So we've been fortunate enough to have colleagues and friends who have been able to make some wonderful connections and introductions from us. So that trust in in, in our personal networks has been invaluable. So I really encourage startup founders to use your networks, ask people for favours, ask them for introductions, because that's what it really takes initially. You know, we, we all do cold calls, we all do the classic business development approach, but never underestimate the power of your network. I think probably one of the most exciting demos or, or examples of, of our network working was actually the demo we did to USAID a few months ago. And that was, again, a friend of a friend who we knew worked there and they were quite senior, had agreed to take a demo and, and hear about Pira. And when we got on the call, just people kept joining the call and really senior people. I think when we kicked off, we had about 20 different people from USAID on the call and they literally covered the entire agency, it seemed. You know, we had people who covered uh, South South America, people who covered the Middle East, people who covered um, uh, Asia, and then we had people working in the States covering different themes, different humanitarian issues. Uh, we had the corruption-focused people. We had the investigators. It was huge. I We were quite overwhelmed. We honestly hadn't expected such a turnout to see a little piece of startup tech. And they were all really excited by it. And they had this long list of questions. Can you do it in different languages? Can you access sites outside of the US? What are you focusing on? Ah, can you pick up on these issues? It was really exciting and inspiring us for us because 
it reinforced the fact that, yes, we were doing the right thing. We were on the right track. And even though, to be perfectly honest, USAID won't buy from us probably for 24 months if we're really lucky, but it reinforced that there was a need, there was a desire, and that we can certainly help them. And that was really exciting. I feel like that's the demand signal, right? Because you're a tech startup that's originating from a nonprofit that was probably working very closely with USAID. And so it's like brothers, it's like a family coming together and you're saying, look at this awesome tech startup that really is a product of all of our hard work and something that we really need to, to utilize. And, and the other thing, I when I talk to tech startups and I say, they ask, how do you know if you're getting any traction, especially with these Air Force open topics where you have to find your customer? And so some of it is if you're taking meetings or emails and you see more names and more names and more names, that's always a good sign. That's right. So that's really interesting. Because as we all know, everyone's time is so precious, right? It's easy to decline a meeting for something you know nothing about. But when there's an internal buzz and people are saying, no, you got to jump on this call, that's when you know you really are heading in the right direction. But you still have to be patient because it still can take quite a few months before that excitement actually turns into some, some dollar signs. How did you prepare for that USAID meeting? Because with a commercial customer, there's usually a lot out there that you can discover about what it is that that customer is looking for. Whereas in my experience, finding out Getting doing doing your customer research for government customers is blindingly difficult. Yeah, that's that's a good question. Sometimes you can only prep a little bit and you have to just be flexible. But when you're doing the demo, and I think that's how we approach that, right? We created ahead of time some projects on USAID so we could have some live examples to show them this is what people are saying uh, about USAID on these fringe and alternative social media sites. Did you guys know? Have you seen it? And of course they hadn't. That was quite, that was a lot, that was brand new news to them. But then in the demo examples, we we put in something a little bit generic and, and showed them how our technology works, how it can take an idea, a piece of disinformation and understand it at the semantic level and then track the evolution of a piece of information, how you can track people, track threats against people. And, and while we were doing that, we were given the examples, right? You know, this would be really useful for uh, if, if you had a team who were based overseas in a particular country and you were very worried about security there or perhaps there was a big event happening and you wanted to monitor discussion around potential riots or protests that were happening in a region or there was a massive piece of misinformation that was being propagated about COVID and the COVID vaccine and and, and how that influences your work. So we, we tried to do some prep and then we tried to be flexible in responding to the questions that we were getting on the call. And I just want to highlight that you gave them different use cases that you knew that your audience needed. And Correct. I think that, that that can be really hard for a tech startup who doesn't have that kind of experience with the organization they're talking to. Yeah, how'd you, how'd you know what they needed? Um, well, again, because Welton has worked for Human Rights First, he has engaged with a USAID before in that environment. So he's, he knew a little bit about some of the issues that they were focused on. When I used to work for the Australian government, I used to work a lot with our equivalent and, again, you know, familiar with a lot of the ways they apply their, their resources, their people, the type of issues they think about. And also we did a little bit of research, of course. You can always do some, some general desktop research to understand what a customer like USAID is working on. Usually customers like that have a lot of that stuff on their website, which helps a bit. 
but if you work if you're interviewing or demoing for a, an intel agency it becomes a little bit more difficult and then the other thing that you highlighted is that you're you're going into these you're prepared but you're you're doing a lot of listening and responding and i think that that can be really hard for early teams as well especially in tech because again you become so focused on your product and showing everything that it can do and illustrating all the amazing technical features but most of those a lot of the time the customer doesn't care how the product works or they just want to know how it can help solve one problem for them and so often well most times when we start a demo um, for a customer we start the conversation by asking them some of the problems that they're experiencing because that can help you completely change or shift the way you're going to demo a product or the type of conversation you're going to have and you're not wasting your time, you're not wasting their time, and it will ultimately be a much more productive outcome. When I've had these demos, immediately afterward, I get a bombardment from the government agency saying, hey, you should go talk to blank, big prime contractor. Your tech would fit right in. And I always just have this chill run down my spine when I see those. Yeah, partnerships and subcontracting. Look, it's one of the areas that we've had some interesting discussions and we had those very early on. Coming from defence and space, I was very sceptical about partnering with any of the big primes because they don't know how to work with startups. They're slow, they're clunky, and they end up devouring you, essentially. So I was very sceptical from the beginning, but of course I always want to have these conversations. And we didn't go, we didn't have any conversations with the big primes, but we focused at the mid-tier level because we thought, okay, Maybe that might be the compromise, right? They'll have some big contracts, but they won't be so big that we will get lost. But ultimately, when we did some digging, we had one or two conversations with a couple of the different potential partners. It became very clear very quickly that they weren't actually interested in Pira. They were interested in taking our technology, breaking it down, absorbing it, and pushing it as an existing piece of product that they have, which if you just want to make cash, is great. That's the best way to generate a whole lot of cash really fast. But it's not the avenue that we want to take because in doing that, we completely lose control of our technology. We completely lose our brand. We completely lose all transparency about how our technology is being used and applied. And that's really important to us. And you don't have an opportunity to grow as a company. You're you're a small blip on the radar and then you vanish. You're eaten alive by these people. So you need to be very careful. And if you are having these discussions, don't be afraid to ask some very tough questions early on because you'll save yourself a lot of time. What what are those tough questions? Like what are the you know again, you know, thinking about for the benefit of the listener, like what questions should they ask? Ask what their business model is as a basic starting point, right? How do they like to work with startups to sell their products? Some of them will just do general licensing. They'll buy bulk licenses and sell them onto the government. Others will say, Oh, we're really interested in subcontracting you with existing pieces with existing contracts, and it would be a great way of sharing your technology. But what they're really saying there is, we're not interested in selling Pira. We're not interested in selling your brand. We're not really interested in showing the government what your technology can do. We're interested in breaking it down to accessing the code and that element of the solution. But it sounds very nice on the surface. So if it's not exactly clear, I think in terms of the business model, if they're being a bit superficial and it sounds too good to be true, start drilling down. But what do you actually mean by that? What does subcontracting with you look like? How would you be using our technology? How would you integrate it into existing contracts, existing 
products and services that you have. Um, a lot of the other big partners are also very interested in making their money from services. So selling your product is one thing, but then they want to provide a service on top of that to the government, which is how they generate their money. So again, is that an area that you can see yourself moving into in the future and you, you don't want to lose that opportunity for yourself? Or is that a way that you can see your product being devalued and manipulated or warped into something that you're not interested in? Um, so that's my warning. Beware gifts. You need to dig really deeply into what they actually mean when they're saying these wonderful sounding things. Are there, are there any messages you have? Are there people you're trying to meet, program offices, government officers, uh, any anybody that if you could make an ask to them what you'd like to get back? Yeah, we're always looking for really great talent. We're in the process of hiring some engineers at the moment, uh, some full stack engineers. And then as we move forward, we'll be looking to hire some and dedicated salespeople as we move into Q2, Q3 of next year. So any wonderful talent or just people who love the idea of Pira and want to be part of our journey, I would love to hear from them uh, because you never know when you're going to find the next amazing addition to your team. In terms of people to meet, yeah, we've got some good conversations ongoing at the moment with, with DHS, but we would love to potentially connect with a couple of, of other agencies, particularly DOD or a couple of the intel agencies, CIA, FBI, to have some initial discussions and to put Pira in front of them and see what their reaction is. So that would be also the ask. We'll be chasing those guys next year, but um, happy to hear from them. You mentioned being a new parent, mm -hmm. a new mom, and my I have had this experience as well previously. And I, my guess is that being a new mom, uh, there's probably quite a few similarities with being a new dad. So you're, are you working at this time? And then this decision, I think we all have these moments of, should I work for a company? Should I stay at home? Should I do a startup? That's like a whole other choice. It is so, enough. Yeah. How did that affect you? How was that unique as a working parent? Yeah, my, I'm very happy to say my daughter was a surprise. My my partner and I never really expected to have her, let alone have her at the time we did. So for me, it's always been a very strong focus on my career. I, I love working. And what always drives me to a new challenge is, does it scare me? Is it hard enough? That's the first question I ask myself. And doing a startup definitely is hard enough. There's plenty of things there I've never done before. So it sounded like an amazing challenge. But really what tipped me over the line was, was Welton. As I mentioned, Welton and I met at the Atlantic Council in our fellowship together in 2018. And it was one of those amazing connections that we had. You know, it was a group of 20 fellows. Everyone was lovely. It's the most amazing, unique, intelligent group of people I've ever had the privilege to get to know. But Welton and I had this instant connection, which was lovely, quite strange. And at the end of our two weeks together in the fellowship, we did this leadership course. And as part of it, we did a survey, which basically uh, helped us identify what motivates us as leaders. And it was really quite funny because there was a quadrant and most of the group were all scattered across two quarters together. And then Welton and I were off in a quadrant all by ourselves overlapping. And we looked at each other and laughed because we went, yep, there's a connection there. We have the same way of thinking about problems. Uh, we're motivated by the same things. And working with Welton on a startup where we were ultimately trying to solve a really big problem, a, a disease that's sort of plaguing us all at the moment was a no-brainer. I was in straight away. And being a parent, 
all three of the co-founders, we all have really young kids. So we're all probably a little bit crazy for starting up, so starting a, a new company when we're all such young parents. But that's also a motivation, right? It's it's a scary world already for our kids and thinking about when our kids get older and they start going online as well and have to do all this stuff. And if we can make it a little bit better, a little bit safer for them, then I think we'll all be much happier. And we're also recording on a day that my son is not at school because of a TikTok challenge constituting school violence on December 17th. And how does that go into and how do we even cope as a humanity of all of these changes that have taken place and the misinformation or just even propagation of negative ideas that that come into our world? Yeah, it's interesting, right? One of uh, I'm a big David Bowie fan, and there's this conversation interview he did years and years ago, probably 20 years ago now, when the internet was just starting to take off. And he he said something along the lines of, "The internet, I don't think we've quite really grasped its potential yet. It, it's going to do wonderful things for humanity, and it's going to do terrible, truly evil things for humanity." And I don't think he he knew exactly how right he was because. We're now living in this world where, yeah, the internet's fantastic. We can get everything we want with the click of a button. It'll be here tomorrow, today, if we've got rush delivery. Uh, we can speak with people around the world. We can work remotely, which is fantastic. And at the same time, our kids are in danger because of a TikTok craze. That was Beck Jones from Puritech. And we know that understanding and applying for federal funding can be complicated. So please visit Undiluted on fedscout.com to hear more founder stories and get guides, checklists, and Q&A forums to help you explore federal funding. We release new episodes each week, so please like, follow, and subscribe to make sure you get alerted when new episodes are released. And thank you for listening.